I remember when uh, I first came to Four Corners, my first couple of Sundays here, I was a candidate for the pastoral position, and I had come to, to preach, and I remember that one of those two times, I don't remember which, but that particular song was sung, and I just, uh, what a reminder for us this morning as we enter into our worship service that it is all of the Holy Spirit. What a reminder that apart from His moving among us, apart from His gifts, His grace, we really won't accomplish anything this morning. We really can't accomplish anything in our daily lives. And so just what a prayer for us as we enter into this time of receiving the very word He authored that the, the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who gifts us, strengthens us, is the same person, and he is a person, not an it, a force. He's a person. He, the Holy Spirit, authored the pages of Scripture. He authored these words. These words were breathed out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he carried along the prophets, those who wrote these words. And that includes Moses. As he wrote the words that we have been looking at in Genesis chapter 1 to 3, that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we can trust this morning. This is, the, this is the amazing thing. We can trust that we're not alone. We're not left to ourselves this morning as we hear God's word. We're not left uh, to ourselves as we look at its meaning and as we pray and ask God and seek him and say, God, do something in me. Change me. Be merciful to me. We know he listens and we know that his Holy Spirit is powerful. So we're praying that he will work among us today. Expelled with grace. That was the title for the sermon last week as we finished looking at the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, Adam and Eve were punished. That is very clear from the narrative there. They are expelled. They are literally driven out from the garden, the language of judgment. There's a, a flaming sword, fire sword, both words of judgment in the Bible. And here they are coming together with, with angelic beings there, protecting the way to the garden. Clearly an act of punishment. So yes, they were punished, but it was not a punishment without grace. God's undeserved favor. This is grace in an unexpected place. I mean, you read throughout the pages of Scripture, and, and really as you go through Genesis chapter 3, you, you just think of it as a judgment passage. You know, the grace is yet to come. We're going to read about that later, uh, down the road, but not here in Genesis chapter 3. But what we have there in the passage we looked at last week at the very end, in those verses 20 to 24, is grace in an unexpected place. God graciously gave Adam faith. We know faith comes from a heart that has been graced by God. So God graciously gave Adam faith. God graciously covered Adam and Eve with animal skins. And of course, that is pointing forward towards God's provided covering for them through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would provide for them and for us a covering for guilt and shame through the death of Christ, through his body, his flesh given up for us, and his blood that would cover us. So God graciously covered them, and God graciously protected them from an evil immortality. And maybe that was something that you had never 
uh, noticed before. It was something that, that really I had not given much attention to is that when, when God cast them out of the garden away from the tree of life, it's not just you can't eat from the tree of life anymore and have immortality. You're cast out and you're the, you, you will therefore return to dust. It's not just that. There is that element of punishment, but there's also another way of understanding that or a fuller way of understanding that. And that is that God was protecting them from locking themselves into, if you will, this state of evil forever. So that they would eat of this tree and they would live as such. They would live in this Forever state of wickedness with hearts that had disobeyed God in a state of fallenness in perpetuity. So God protects them from that. We see his grace all throughout these verses. And today, as we come to the horrible story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, we see a continuation of that grace. And in fact, this just reminds us that throughout the Bible, we are looking at, we really are looking at salvation history. That the Bible is not multiple stories. It's one story. It's the story of the Savior. It's the story of the God who is mighty to save. The God who saves. And all throughout the pages of the Bible, we get this Savior God applying salvation to his people. So we see a continuation of that grace. God graciously gives Eve faith. We see that at the very beginning of the passage we're going to read today. God graciously accepts the worship of sinful human beings. Isn't it amazing that God can even be approached after the fall? Isn't it amazing that the very first story we get, and we could miss this, we could scoot right over this if we're not careful, that the very first story we get is the accessibility of God in worship? That's what's going on, essentially, in those opening verses of the story of Cain and Abel. So God graciously accepts worship from sinners. Incredible. Far more incredible than we realize. God graciously gives Abel a believing heart that honors God. We just read that, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit. But in Hebrews 11, we see that Abel is righteous. He's a believer. He has faith. Where did this come from? He's a sinner. He's, he's post-Adam and Eve. Came from God. God graciously gives him this heart. God graciously calls Eve and Cain to move away from his sin after he sins against God. God graciously calls him. We're going to see that later on in the weeks ahead as God engages with Cain over his sin. We're going to see that God, even with Cain, this vile murderer, is relating to him in a gracious way. Even Cain. So in the darkness of human sin, we see the intense brightness of God's glorious grace. And I think what this, this gives us a very loud message at the beginning of the Bible, and it's this. God is inviting us, even here. You know, we think about the Romans road, the Roman road. We think about John 3:16. These are clear invitations from God. I don't know if you grew up in a, 
in a tradition where there was an altar call at the end of the service. There was a kind of a time to come forward and pray and make a decision for Christ. But the, most of the time, the, the kinds of verses, or if you went to revivals, you grew up going to revivals where there would be a speaker who would come for a week and it would preach. And at the end, there would be this, these calls to God. Come to God. And there are particular scriptures that we would associate with such a call to God, an invitation to come to God. And what's amazing is that here, in the story of the fall and in the story of Cain and Abel, we are being invited to come to this gracious God, even in these stories. So there's an invitation for us today. Reach out, seek, call out, trust. Believe that this is a God of grace, that he does pardon sin. As we read earlier in the confession from Isaiah, that he is not a God who turns a deaf ear to sinners when they call out to him and repent. That means for you this morning, there's a call to turn away from that life that you have lived apart from God, that life that you have lived where you have loved your sin and you've showed no regard for God's word, no regard for, for his holy standard. You turn away from all of that and you cast yourself upon God's grace. Even here, we have an invitation. Isaiah 55, 6 to 7 says, Seek the Lord... While he may be found. This is what we read earlier. What's amazing, I was back there smiling because I was thinking, you know, Trey, I, I gave a list to the worship team of confessions to choose, and Trey picked this one. Uh, and here it is uh, without communication. But it's amazing that this, this really does reflect the call that's going out to us as we, as we open up these early verses of Genesis 4. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And listen to this. That he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Do you believe that about God? Because any other message about God is not true. Any message about God that contradicts this message is a lie. God is a God who pardons sinners who come to him, who seek him by faith. He is compassionate. He is like a man who walks by, like the good Samaritan, who walked by and saw the man beaten on the side of the road, and he helped him. God is like that in that he walks by us in our pitiful state of servitude to sin, and he reaches down, he grabs us, he treats our wounds, and he makes us well. Do you believe that about God? Because if you don't believe that about God, there's really nothing else that matters. Nothing. In terms of your religion, in terms of your expression of Christianity, you keep all the rules, do all the things right as you see it, but if you don't believe this about God, it's not Christianity, it's something else. Some form of moralism or some other man-made religion. So Cain and Abel, that's where we're at today. If you will, please turn in your Bible to Genesis 4. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses. Genesis 4, verses 1 to 8. 
The title for the sermon this morning is Evil After Expulsion. Evil After Expulsion. It really is incredible that this is the first thing we get right after the fall. Right after the expulsion of Adam and Eve. It is meant to shock us into understanding what the fall means for these image bearers of God, for human beings. This is our first glimpse of life outside of the garden. Do you see that? This is the very first picture. If you were to sort of understand the Bible in terms of little snapshots, what's the first snapshot that we get when we leave Eden, when we leave the garden? This is what we get. The first effects of sin beyond Adam and Eve. Here in the story of Cain and Abel, John Calvin comments that Adam is compelled to taste the bitter fruits of his own sin when Cain slew Abel. So let's just think for a moment. What is the situation of Adam and Eve? One son murdered. The other son, a murderer. And all of this being traced back to their own disobedience. As Calvin says, this is the bitter fruit of their own sin. Can you imagine hearing you will return to the dust and and you'll have to work the ground and it's going to be painful to bear children and Eve has now experienced this twice. But more than all, All of that in terms of their experience. And for any of us who has children, for any of us who knows the delight in our children, we get this. An incredible weight on the heart of Adam and Eve. This is the fruit of their own doing. And I think that we can extract from this a warning for us as parents, even today, as we think about it, there is a categorical difference between us and our children and the relationship between us and our children, the relationship of Adam and Eve to their children. Adam and Eve's children were sinners literally because of Adam and Eve's actions. They brought the entire race into sin. Therefore, the first offspring were sinners because of them directly. That's not the case with us and our children. Our children are sinners because of Adam and Eve, just as we're sinners because of Adam and Eve and ultimately because of our own wicked hearts. We can't blame Adam and Eve on the day of judgment. We sin, and therefore we deserve death. But nonetheless, I think this serves as a warning to parents. And here's the question that I think we're meant to ask. How will the bitter fruit of your sin be played out in the lives of your children. See, it's easy to think about ourselves and to think, well, you know, what's the effect of this? Just this little look or this little habit or this little expression of this passion or this lust or whatever it might be. But what kind of real, concrete, lived-out effects Will your sin have on your children and on their children and on their children? We know this. We've seen it. We could sit and talk 
today. We could sit and have small conversations about the effects that we have seen in people's lives of how the sin of parents affects the children emotionally, physically, financially, and every other kind of way, relationally. We have seen this many times in our own lives and families, the people we love, the people we know here in our own church. How will the bitter fruit of your sin be played out in the lives of your children? If you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 4, verses 1 to 8. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You can go ahead and be seated. Just eight verses after the expulsion from the garden, we get these words. And... He killed him. This is an image bearer of God, murdered by his brother. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is active. We thank you that he was active thousands of years ago as... He inspired Moses to write these words. We trust that. Father, we thank you for the self-authenticating nature of your word, the Bible, how the Bible shows us its perfection even within itself. And Father, we thank you that throughout history you have given many evidences in history and archaeology and in terms of textual criticism and other forms of evidence that Give witness to the veracity and reliability of your precious Bible. And so, God, we are so grateful that we get to sit here this morning and we get to study it and read it and hear it because we know it is a message from the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would glorify yourself, that you would be big and We would see ourselves as small, our problems as small, our earthly hopes as small, and that we would see you as gigantic, massive, magnified. 
Father, we pray that through that we would see you as the gracious God that you are, that you would reveal yourself to us, even in this passage, as a God who calls sinners to yourself, a God who pardons sin, that any of us this very day can choose to turn to you, the living God, and repent by your grace. You call us right now, each of us, to that. So, Father, give us what we need this morning to listen and respond. We ask for your grace. We know that nothing happens, no repentance, no faith, apart from your Spirit's call and his grace in our hearts. So we ask for that this morning. Father, be merciful to us as we sit under your word. Father, change us in specific ways. Exalt Christ that he might rule in our hearts. We pray that we would cast our cares this morning before you, that we would cast them on you trusting that you care for us, that we would believe that you love us and that you are a heavenly Father who cares for our needs, that we would trust you with those this morning and not allow all the thoughts that are probably racing through minds even now as I pray to distract us from this moment with you before your word. Father, would that not happen? Would you help us? We are so weak. We are so needy. We are so prone to fear, so prone to worry, so prone to lust and distraction and other things. God, would you, would you just remove that this morning and protect this, this time from the evil one? We pray for our children as they gather in the back, over on the side and at Lavender Meadows. We pray that you would be merciful to them. We recognize that they too are in Adam, and we ask that they would all be in Christ. We ask, Father, that you would save each one of them, not some of them, but every single one of them, God. We're asking for that. We pray for your mercy. And God, we lift up this service to you. We pray that it would do what you would have it to do, God. We know it is done in weakness and human frailty, but we trust your, your power is, is made known in our weakness. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is noteworthy that the word Cain appears 14 times between verses 1 to 17. It's almost an average of one time per verse. 14 times the word Cain appears here, and that tells us that he is the focus of this passage. He, this passage is meant to highlight or put a spotlight on Cain to communicate some things to us. And I think we get three things to consider in these first eight verses as we put a spotlight, really, on Cain. There's much that could be said, and I've already alluded to the fact, I've already discussed the fact that here, even here, we see God's grace in the lives of Eve and Abel, and even God's grace in the life of Cain, though not saving grace. But we see here, all of these various things that we could focus on, but here I want to put the spotlight on Cain and particularly on these three things. First, the rejected offering. Second, the raging attitude. And finally, the rebellious murder as we go through verses 1 to 8. So let's start with the rejected offering. Look at verses 1 to 5, or at least the first part of verse 5. We're going to read those again. Now Adam and Eve, now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, 
and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Here we see the outworking of God's blessing in chapter 1, verse 28, when God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're seeing the outworking of that blessing, that God blessed them to procreate, and now we have that happening. Adam and Eve are procreating. They are reproducing. We have here two sons, Cain, the firstborn, and his brother Abel. Some have said that they could be twins. That's not clear from the text. What we know is that Cain was born, and then after that, Abel was born. No clarity there on whether or not they are twins. Two sons, two offspring in fulfillment of God's blessing in chapter 1. This also makes possible the outworking of God's promise that Eve would have a future seed, a he who would bruise or crush the head of Satan. So here we have not only this 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 fulfilling of God's blessing that they would procreate, that there would be offspring in the world. But here we have a spark of hope, a spark of possibility. God had promised that a a seed or an offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent or bruise the head of the serpent, would crush Satan's head, offer a fatal blow to the devil that he would be defeated. And here we have a, a sort of spark of possibility Two sons. Hmm. Let's see what happens. We know that that's not the case yet, but I want you to look really quickly at verse 25 of chapter 4, just as we think ahead a little bit. After that, we have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Abel's gone. Cain's gone. Ugh. What's going to happen now? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Do you see that language? Another offspring. There is hope here in the seed, in the future seed. And then listen to this. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's through the line of Seth that you will have Noah. And it's through that same line that you will have Abraham. Through that same line, you will have David. Through that same line, you will have the Christ. And we get that when we open up the New Testament. And we get these genealogies tracing, Luke tracing, and all the way back to Adam through Seth. So we know that the the line, the line that would give rise to the seed has not been squashed here. But at least at the very beginning, for Cain and Abel, there is a spark of hope, even here before this murder, that maybe one of these could be the seed. We see Eve's hopeful and grateful response at the birth of her first son, Cain, in verse 1. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She recognizes that God is the one who has given life. That she is giving birth to a son and that God is the one who is behind that. In addition to the hopeful and grateful tone, notice that she also uses the personal and covenantal name of God. Do you notice that? She calls him Lord. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Do you remember when Eve was tempted by Satan? And it's almost as though that that 
We're, we're in chapter two and we get all this language about the Lord God, the Lord God, the covenant making, personal, loving, kind, God, majestic God. In chapter three, we, we get that sort of yanked out of the picture. No longer do we get the language of Lord God, but here we see Eve expressing with her mouth this confidence in the Lord as this personal covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So like Adam in chapter 3, verse 20, Eve is presented here as a believer in God. We should understand that, that Adam and Eve are hoping in God, they are trusting God, they belong to God, they are the people of God. We saw that last week with Adam naming his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. He names his wife Eve, which means life. That's hopeful. It's trusting, and we see the same expression coming out of Eve's heart here. And as believers in God, Adam and Eve would have worshipped him, and they would have taught their children to worship him as well. Adam and Eve would have taught their little boys as they grew up, Cain, little Cain, little Abel, to worship the Lord God. Adam and Eve would have taught them not only to worship, but they would have taught them how to worship. It appears from verses three to four that one of the ways God instructed the first humans to worship him was to bring offerings to him, offerings that would express honor and thanksgiving. So verse three says that in the course of time, these two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, brought offerings to the Lord. We don't know how old they are at this point. Probably young men, independent in their work, maybe teenagers, maybe a little bit after that. We really don't know, but we see here that in the course of time, Adam, uh, Cain and Abel go to make an offering to the Lord. This seems to be the pattern for life in the Adam and Eve family, in the Adam and Eve home. This is what you do. You make offerings to the Lord as a show of honor and homage to him and as a show of thanksgiving for all that he has given us. So they brought offerings to the Lord. Cain, who was a farmer, brought produce. And Abel, who was a shepherd, brought one of the animals of his flock. And we are told in verses 4 and 5 that God accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. Why? This is the big question. A lot of people disagree on this. I think there's a lot of things that people bring to the text. Why is it that God rejects Cain's offering? Although the text does not give us an explicit answer to this question, I think we are able to make some helpful observations. But the first thing that needs to be said is that there really is nothing in the text to suggest that it's a matter of animals versus crops. Uh, that is something that you will find. It's an explanation that you will find. So in fact, it's the most popular explanation. So it will, you probably have heard that preached. You would read that in some study Bibles. That really what's going on here is Abel offers a, an animal sacrifice and Cain offers some produce. God embraces or accepts the animal sacrifice uh, as, a, as a pointer to Christ that, that there must be a substitute for sin, to cover sin. We talked about that last week with the covering, pointing to Christ, and that Cain's real error is he fails to recognize the substitute. He fails to recognize this need for death 
uh, and blood sacrifice, and so that's what's going on here. I think that's theologically sound, but I just don't know that that's the explanation that really comes out of this text. So if we stick close to this text and elsewhere in the Bible that refers to Cain and Abel, I think we come up essentially with two reasons. Why God does not accept Cain's offering. First, Abel's offering is described how? Notice the descriptors. Abel's offering is described as the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And nothing of this sort is said for the offering of Cain. We have to pay attention to this. It doesn't say anything negative. In other words, we're not to extract here something negative that is said about Cain's offering, but it is the absence of the positive element that is said regarding Abel's offering. Do you see where I'm going with that? So, Abel is said to offer the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Cain simply offered something. Whereas Abel brought the very best to the Lord, Cain held back the best and gave God something else. Something a little bit less or maybe a whole lot less. Maybe it's just some extra something that he had sitting around and just threw it out there for God. Here you go, God. A little sacrifice for you to appease you. Abel, of course, seems intentional, methodical, and he takes the very Best. It appears that Abel had the same attitude of David as expressed in 2 Samuel 24, 24, where David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Wow, you hear that? You hear what he said? That's incredible. How convicting is that? David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Abel said, yes. That was his attitude. So he gave God the very best. Now, I didn't understand this whole fat portions business until, as I've mentioned before, Jennifer and I started watching some of these documentaries on living in the wilderness of Alaska and realizing how much those people love, like, moose fat and stuff like that. I'm thinking, that sounds awful. I mean, who wants to eat caribou or moose fat? Um, that doesn't sound appetizing at all. But, but in that kind of context, the fat is precious, and the fat is tasty, and the fat is nutritious. It's strengthening to the body. So the fat portions are given to the Lord as the best of the best. The firstborn, and we go on to read later, spotless, perfect, and the fat portions of that animal given over to the Lord. Abel's offering cost him the very best, but it appears that Cain's cost him nothing. Since God will later reveal to Israel that they are to make offerings from the first of the fruit of the ground and from the first and best of their flocks, I think we can conclude that God had commanded this also to Cain and Abel. So that God had not left Cain and Abel in the dark about what kind of offering they should have brought to him. God makes clear about this later, and the Israelites would have understood very much in terms of the sacrificial system. Those who were first reading this in Genesis would have understood that God wants the very best from us as we give gratitude to him and show honor to him. So what we have here is disobedience in Cain, which gives rise to a less than best offering from him. But that leads to the second reason why Cain's offering is rejected. Second, and even more importantly, 
Notice that it is not just Cain's offering that is rejected, but Cain himself. Look at the language of verse 5. In verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Do you get that? So it's not just that Cain's offering was off. This is not just a failure to, to, to put in place what needed to be put in place. Oh, that's not going to work. Put, some, put something else up there, Cain. It's not just a problem with the act of worship. It's a problem with the worshiper. God had no regard for Cain or for his offering. The problem with Cain's offering was Cain himself. God did not accept this worshiping heart. And if we want to know why, answer to that question, we really have to go to the New Testament as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 4, reflects on this. And what does he say? We read this a little bit earlier. Craig did. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. In other words, what we have when we look at Cain and Abel, if we could take a magnifying glass and go down deep into the heart, and I don't mean the organ that pumps blood, but I mean the very core of the person, the thought life, the intentions, the heart, all of that inside of Cain and Abel, what we would see essentially is this, faith and unbelief. Faith in Abel, unbelief in Cain. Cain is an unbeliever. He does not trust God. He does not hope in God's promises and grace. He does not live a life of dependence on God's goodness. He is an unbeliever. And unbelief always shows up in disobedience and unacceptable worship. So Proverbs 21, 27 says this, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. We read this in the prophets. I mean, how often do the Israelites come and they come to do their, to do their act of worship? They get everything together and they go there and they go through the motions and they do that. And God describes this as despicable, disgusting. He hates worship from unbelieving, unrepentant hearts. God is a God who sees the heart. He cares nothing for all these actions that does not come from a right heart. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? And so what, can we, what implications can we extract out for ourselves here? Well, I think the first is that God desires faith-generated obedience from us this morning. So listen, we can come here, we can attend, we can lift our voices and lift our hands in worship of God. We can do all of these things. But what God wants to see in every single heart in my heart, in your heart, every single heart. This is what God wants. This is what God requires. Faith-generated obedience. A heart that believes God's promises. A heart that reaches up to God, takes hold of him, and trusts in him as the rock for your life. And not all these other things that people hope in, but God. And a heart that says, because I trust you, God, I will obey you. Because I believe in you as you've revealed yourself to me through the Bible, because you are this God, I will obey you on the basis of my trust. I will turn from evil and turn to you in trust. So what is Cain's response 
to the rejection of his offering? The short answer is he adds evil to evil. And that's really what we see here, a stacking up of evil. He adds evil to evil. Look at, and that leads us to our second point, the raging attitude. Look at the end of verse 5. So we have the rejected offering, and now we look at the raging attitude. And just briefly, we see these words at the end of verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. That's Cain's response to God's rejection of his offering. Very angry. There are several things to notice here, but the most obvious is that this is the exact opposite of what his response should have been. Cain could have repented of his unworthy offering. He could have said, God, that was unworthy of you. That was not showing gratitude to you. That was not showing honor to you. I did not give you my best. But that's not what Cain did at all. He could have sought the God of grace who had embraced his parents and his brother, but instead he goes in the entirely opposite direction. He gets angry. And not just angry, but the text says very angry. The text literally says in Hebrew, it burned to Cain exceedingly. That's, that's literally the language there. It burned to Cain exceedingly. This is a heart that is inflamed with rage. This is anger towards God and toward his brother. The early church father, John Chrysostom, says there were two reasons for his annoyance. Not just that he alone had been rejected, but also that his brother's gift had been accepted. He hated Abel because God accepted his offering. He hated Abel's faith. He hated Abel's righteousness. Cain's concern is not with pleasing God or with God being glorified. Isn't that amazing here? I mean, what should Cain have, have done? Repented of his own wickedness and celebrated his brother's faith. Think about that for a moment. If it is true that we pray, hallowed be your name, God be glorified. If the chief end of man is the glory of God, and that's the chief desire of man is the glory of God, then what Cain should have done is delighted in Abel's righteousness and his faith and said, wow, man, that's what I should have done. God, forgive me. Let me do it again. Let me offer to you again. But Cain cares nothing for God's glory. Do you see that? He's really the first one who cares nothing for God's glory except for Adam and Eve at the beginning. He cares nothing for what pleases God. Cain cares about what pleases Cain, not God. He does not delight at all in his brother. He hates him for what he's done, for his acceptance with God. We see pride and envy, which causes his countenance to fall, Cain does not want to be outdone by his brother and especially his younger brother, right? Here it is. He's the oldest. Everything would have come to him as, as we read through that throughout the Bible. We get this emphasis on the oldest child. Of course, God frequently flips that on its head and he prefers the youngest, little David, the shepherd boy. Jesse, his dad, doesn't even bring him in. Of course, 
God hasn't chosen this little guy to be king. He's out there with the sheep. And we know this also with Esau and Jacob. So we see that God tends to prefer the younger, but here we see with Cain, he does not want his younger brother to outdo him. He cares only for his own pride. And let me just ask this question. What is your response towards the righteousness of other people and their faith in God? Do you look at other people's acts of of righteousness and acts of zeal and devotion to God and do you kind of scorn? Do you get angry when you see that? Do you miss, I'm probably going to go down over that in a minute. Uh, do, Do you miss, do you, do you look over at other people's acts of righteousness and love towards God and just get angry about, about that in your heart? Or maybe you think the worst. Oh, they're not really doing that from a pure heart. That's just immature zeal. Or maybe you would say something along the lines of, well, they're just doing that to be seen by others. We mischaracterize people's righteous deeds that are wrought by God, that God, by his grace, has done in their hearts, rather than celebrating the grace of God in other people, even if that grace of God shows us up, right? Even if the grace of God in the lives of other people is a convicting force for us, the proper response is not that of Cain, to get angry and envious and accusatory, but rather to repent and do likewise. But so often we go in the way of Cain. And it is in this state of seething anger, this state of rage towards God and his brother, that Cain stands on the brink of disaster. This passage gives us some insight about the fruit of anger. So this passage is not about anger. I don't think you could take and make this passage about anger, but I think we're meant to extract something from this as we consider the theme of anger. So James 1.20 says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when we read that in light of Hebrews 11, and we read that Abel was righteous and Cain was not, I think we are to understand here a connection back to Cain. Cain is the first vehemently angry one. And anger takes over his heart And what does it produce? It does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me ask you this. What does anger produce in your life? What does it produce? Does it produce anything good? Does it produce God-honoring, constructive things in our lives? Or does it just tear our lives apart? Cain is here standing on the brink of disaster. And it involves his angry, raging So where does this anger lead Cain? And that leads to our final point this morning, the rebellious murder. Look at verses 6 to 8 as we finish up. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Notice God's attitude towards Cain. This is really important. Just like with Adam and Eve, he doesn't blast Cain. Cain offers this pitiful, ungrateful little sacrifice to God. The God of heaven 
The God who made him and who's allowing him to approach him in worship despite his wicked heart, despite the guilt of sin that rests upon him. And Cain does this pitiful sacrifice. And what does God do? He doesn't blast him. He doesn't consume him with a fireball from heaven, just like with Adam and Eve. He doesn't do that. Instead, he calls him to faithful obedience. Essentially, it's this. God gently and lovingly calls Cain to repent, to turn away from this towards obedience. And even more, he warns him of where he is headed in this state of rage. This is an incredible God. Every time we open up the Bible and read it, we are, we are given a God who, who calls us, come to me, come to me, repent, turn away from your sin. Every time we open the Bible. And not only that, but God says, but if you don't, you must understand what awaits you. And that is what God does here. Even with this vile man, Cain, and with each of us, also vile. Essentially, God is saying this, obey me, Cain. Do what is right. Repent of what's in the past and turn away from your anger and towards me in faith. In some ways, I think is paraphrased what, what God is saying to Cain in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, where it says this, submit yourselves Therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What an incredible message that we need to hear this morning. Wherever you're at, that's the message for you. That's the message for me. He will exalt you. Cain's faith, face has fallen. And God says, I want to lift up your face. I will lift up your face. Turn to me. I will lift up your face. And God will lift up your face if you'll repent. Turn away from this way and go the other way. Only by God's grace, but he calls us to do it. And God warns him of the power of sin. It is personified as an evil lurking demon. I mean, it's amazing the language here. Sin is personified as this lurking demonic force. They're ready to destroy him. A beast about to pounce on its prey. A hungry lion or wolf about to pounce and eat. This is what sin is to Cain in this moment. And if Cain continues in his unrepentant rage, sin will pounce on him and devour him and control him. And you too, sin will destroy your life. It will eat you alive. If you hear this morning these words, and don't turn back to God, wherever you're at. This is the call. But what is Cain's response to God's word, God's call, defiance and rebellion? And that's the reason why I've, I've set up here the rebellious murder. It's not just a murder. It is a murder that comes immediately after hearing God's word. God has said, do this, Cain. And Cain says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to kill my brother. That is exactly 
what he does. And the text wastes no time. I mean, there's no time in the description here in between. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Boom, right there. In one ear, out the other. God cares nothing. I mean, Cain cares nothing for what God said. He rejects, he defies God's word. In response to God's gracious plea, Cain does the opposite. He lures his brother out into a field and he murders him. You imagine? Abel probably thought the best about his brother. Who knows what he thought they were going out into the field to do. But Cain was going to kill him, take away his life. In fact, Abel's name means a breath, a mere breath, vanity. In that sense, maybe he was named that as a a kind of anticipation of what would happen to him. Adam and Eve not knowing, but as an anticipation of what would happen to him. Or maybe he was named that because uh, a reflection on life in a fallen world. A human being is but a breath. The Bible says this throughout. But Abel's name here appears to become true, appears to, to come true. He is a mere breath. He is murdered. He is killed. Yet Abel is in heaven with the Lord God. He trusted in God. He had faith. We'll see Abel again. Those of us who know the Lord. One commentator says, Cain's refusal to deal rightly with his sin permitted his anger to fester into murder. Here's a question. What is the lust and passion of your heart right now festering into? If you could take it and and look at the the cause and effect relationships of you holding on to whatever sin it is in your heart, whatever lust or passion, maybe it's anger, maybe it's rage, maybe it's lust in some other way, maybe it's a a, a greed, a lust for money, it's some kind of passion, and you're just holding on to it, holding it dear. Where's that headed? It's headed nowhere good. Cain's anger festered into murder. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Listen to this. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. It is a fool who lets anger take over his heart. A fool lets anger do that to him. Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Not even a day. Not even part of a day, let anger settle into your heart because it will destroy us. It's a powerful passion. It's a powerful lust of the flesh. It's powerful in us. It will consume our lives as all passions are. So what is your response this morning to God's word? God is saying the same thing to us that he he was saying to Cain. Through this story, God is speaking this to us just as he said to Cain. Turn to me, repent, obey. Don't let that pouncing beast jump on top of you and destroy and consume your life. That's what God is saying to us today. Unbelief, disobedience, pride, envy, malice, rage, murder. This is the life of Cain. And this is the life outside of Eden. This is the life of every person after the fall. This is a picture of the fallen heart and life. Don't miss that. Because see, remember, Abel is one of those who was of faith. He's of the seed of the woman who would ultimately conquer the serpent. He's of the seed. Cain is not. 
1 John 3, 12 says that Cain was of the evil one. He's one of the seed, the offspring of Satan. And so too is every person who does not trust Christ as Savior. They are just like Cain. And they will suffer ultimately the same fate as Cain. Cain is really a prototype of every sinner who, as Jesus says, commits murder through anger in the heart. Every time we're angry with our brother in our heart, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at that recently, we murder just like Cain. Who in here can say you've never been angry toward your neighbor? Who in here can say that you've never called your neighbor a name? None of us. We are all murderers before God. We will either give an account to God for our murderous deeds or we will stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Either one or the other. There's only one solution. Faith in God's deliverance. Adam and Eve and Abel trusted in the seed, the deliverer who would one day come, But Cain did not. He cared nothing for the seed. He cared only about himself. And now we look back to the sacrificial offering of God. We look back. Adam and Eve and Abel, they looked forward to the promise of a deliverer. We look back to the deliverer. We open up the Gospels. We have a a, a wonderful privilege to open up the Gospels and read of the Lord Jesus. We get to read of his character. We get to read of his miracles. We get to read of his compassion and his love and his healing of people. We get to read of his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we get by the power of the Holy Spirit to look back to that Christ and to believe, as John says, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. We have the opportunity to do that. If you haven't trusted Jesus, or if you are not trusting Jesus, I should say, turn to him this morning. Will we look To him with faith, or in the words of Jude, will we walk in the way of Cain? Let's pray. Our good Father, thank you for your perfect word, which heals us and convicts us. Father, we ask that this word this morning would stick into our hearts, that we would Meditate upon it the remainder of this day and this week. God, be gracious to us. Do not not allow, we ask, Satan to come and snatch the seed off the road. We pray that it would settle into some good soil and bear much fruit. God, in all of us, we pray comprehensively for every single one of us gathered here today. And everyone who would listen to this on podcast, we ask for your mercy. Be gracious to us, O God. We know that you are a gracious God. We put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.